You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, May 23rd. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. The river fire tore through our area almost two years ago, and many who experienced its destruction are far from back to their normal lives. But as KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza found, these traumatized victims have a friend in Connecting Point. The California Report dives into the details of the Colorado River Agreement forged by seven western states. And spring has sprung at our local state parks, so it's time to go exploring. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. A historic agreement has been reached between seven western states to cut the amount of water they take from the Colorado River. But what are California's responsibilities under the deal? And which part of the state will be most affected? In Los Angeles, my California Report colleague Saul Gonzalez has the answers. Saul? Hey, Madi. Under the deal, California, the state that uses the most water from the Colorado River, will be responsible for a big share of reductions, up to 1.6 million acre-feet of water. What's an acre-foot? It's about 326,000 gallons, or the amount of water that three average-sized homes need over the course of a year. And there's a carrot if California reduces its reliance on the Colorado River, part of more than $1 billion in federal funds that will go to irrigation districts, cities, and tribes that cut their draw from the river. The Imperial Valley, in the southeastern corner of the state, will be one of the places most affected by the agreement. Annually, the valley's farmlands use more Colorado River water than all of Arizona and Nevada combined. In a statement, Henry Martinez, the general manager of Imperial Valley's Irrigation District, said he was pleased that a deal had been struck based on what he said were voluntary and achievable conservation volumes. Looking ahead, though, water experts say in an age of climate change, much more has to be done to conserve more Colorado River water. Madi? Thanks, all. That's my California Report colleague, Saul Gonzalez. California officials say they're much more optimistic that communities near Tulare Lake in the Central Valley will not experience widespread flooding from the melting snowpack. Brian Ferguson with the State Office of Emergency Services says improving weather conditions means widespread flooding is unlikely. About a month ago, computer models showed that communities like Corcoran, Alpaw, and Allensworth would likely see floods that threatened homes. The state has bolstered levees around Corcoran, and farmers have been diverting more water for irrigation. But officials do warn that conditions could change quickly, and that the region is not completely out of the woods. California's lawmakers have been scrambling to address the state's fentanyl overdose crisis. The synthetic opioid is 50 times stronger than heroin, and it's the cause of nearly 6,000 deaths in California in 2021, according to data from the California Department of Public Health. But the state legislature is split on the best approach to tackling this crisis, treatment or punishment. Here to talk about these two approaches is Anita Chabrier, a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Anita. Hi, thanks for having me on. Of course. 
You've written about two fentanyl crises that are playing out in California. One is the urban street catastrophe and the other is the suburban nightmare. Can you explain the difference between the two? I think that, you know, we hear about fentanyl and we've seen the campaigns where one pill kills and we sort of think of it as this very deadly, you even see the stuff and you're in trouble kind of drug. But the reality is, is that it is the drug of choice on the streets. So people are actually buying fentanyl and buying the highest quality fentanyl they can find in order to inject it or smoke it. And so we have an entire um, population of folks who are addicted to fentanyl and know they're addicted to fentanyl, and that is the drug of choice. On the other side of that, you know, you, you hear about kids getting pills off Snapchat, and those folks don't necessarily, they're not seeking out fentanyl. It might come in the form of something they think is Adderall or Oxy or something like that, but in fact, most of those pills at this point are are manufactured with fentanyl because it's cheaper and easier to do. Uh, so those are the two the two different populations that we have that are being affected by fentanyl. And how is the state legislature dealing with these two populations? There are two very different camps going right now. One is sort of led by the legislators who maybe have uh, personal experience with prior drug wars like the war on crack or live in urban areas and really see what's happening at the street level with fentanyl. And the other side of it is legislators who are really aligned with the parents of these suburban kids who have very tragically died from being exposed to fentanyl pills when they didn't know they were getting it. And that group really uh, is advocating for more arrests, more crackdowns, possibly even forced treatment for folks, and kind of an old school approach that we used during the crack epidemic that we learned does not work. Yeah, you mentioned the punishment proposal, and we know it's a touchy subject. Many families who have lost teens to fentanyl overdose want that justice. What did the experts that you spoke to say? I don't want to in any way um, not support those parents and their path of grieving. But what the experts tell us very, very clearly is, is that punishment does not work. And even sweeping fentanyl up off the streets without going after those big cartels, it just doesn't make a difference because the reason we're in the fentanyl crisis is because smaller quantities go farther and it's easier to make. So you're looking at a drug that if we seize a batch, they can make another batch the same day. And there is a special session coming up with the state legislature to address the fentanyl crisis here in California. What can we expect from that? This hearing is meant to try to just air all those views and see where there might be places of consensus and and might be ways forward and to just talk the whole thing through and see where we can get. That was Los Angeles Times columnist Anita Chabrier. Thank you so much for your time, Anita. Thank you. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation. Listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines the pursuit of good health. On the web at chcf.org/lbca. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved children and youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes 11th Hour Racing, working to connect sustainability with sport to help restore ocean health. On the web at 11thHourRacing.org. 
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, May 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Remember, you can get all your daily state news on the California Report podcast. Subscribe or download wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, the Nevada County Civil Grand Jury is inviting prospective jurors to an orientation from 2 to 4 Thursday afternoon at the Rood Center in Nevada City. The Civil Grand Jury is a watchdog body that is designed to improve government and save taxpayer dollars. It's not the same as a criminal grand jury. It is part of the superior court system made up of 19 county residents who serve for one year starting July 1st. Civil grand jury service can be a commitment of more than 25 hours a week. Grand jury proceedings are secret, and jurors must maintain that confidentiality for life. Jurors attend meetings in person at the Rood Center or through video conferencing. Interested people can apply online at grandjury@nccourt.net or by calling 530-265-1730. The City of Nevada City and Waste Management Incorporated will host a city cleanup event from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. June 3rd at the Rood Center. On the accepted list, green waste, upholstered furniture, appliances, mattresses, and e-waste. The Saturday event will be a chance for Nevada City residents to remove green waste from their property, especially trees, limbs, grasses, leaves, and needles that can create a fire hazard in the summer. United Way of Nevada City has been chosen to distribute one-time $600 relief payments to eligible farm workers, agricultural workers, and food processing workers affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. The relief payments are earmarked for frontline farm workers and meat packers who worked in California from March 2020 to May 2023. It applies to workers who incurred expenses such as the purchase of masks, hand sanitizer, face shields, goggles, gloves, COVID tests, and or child care. If you believe you or your employees may be eligible, call United Way of Nevada County at 530-274-8111. The grants are awarded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now to your regional forecast from the National Weather Service. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley will be clear with a low around 53. Wednesday will be sunny with a high in the mid-70s and a low around 52. Tonight in Truckee and Lake Tahoe, partly cloudy with a low around 37. Wednesday, a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms, otherwise mostly sunny, with a high in the mid-60s. Wednesday night, a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms before 11 p.m. and a low around 37. For Sacramento and Woodland tonight, clear skies with a low in the mid-50s. Winds up to 11 miles per hour with gusts up to 18 miles per hour will continue through Wednesday. Sunny Wednesday with a high near 83 and a low around 53. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. The river fire ravaged our area almost two years ago, but many of those who experienced its destruction are far from back to normal. 
When it comes to navigating the red tape of getting help after a disaster, these traumatized victims have a friend in Connecting Point. Next, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza talks to the agency's Nora Esters. In 2021, on a dry afternoon in August, a fire started in the Bear River campground near Colfax that burned for nine days before being fully contained. That blaze, which was eventually named the River Fire, destroyed hundreds of structures, injured four people, and torched nearly 3,000 acres. That was almost two years ago, and many of the people affected are still struggling. The whole community is still recovering from it. Some folks have already rebuilt their houses and they're moved back in and they're doing all right. But we have a lot of folks that are just at the very beginning stages of rebuilding. We have folks that are still in limbo and don't know if they can afford to rebuild. There's still folks living in fifth wheel trailers on their burnt out properties. That's Nora Esters. She works for Connecting Point, the organization affiliated with 211. She's the lead for the Disaster Case Management Program. So Connecting Point is a joint public authority with Nevada County. Connecting Point, like the bread and butter of Connecting Point is IHSS, In-Home Supportive Services, and for Nevada County, and also they provide 211 for Nevada County and Placer County. But Connecting Point is in this unique place where they can take on other programs that are not necessarily bound to counties. So we were, I don't, and I wasn't there at the beginning, so I couldn't tell you, I think we were approached because Connecting Point was really involved right after the fire. When there was no funding, FEMA wasn't involved yet, but Connecting Point was really involved with the Nevada County survivors just because there was an easier direct line of communication to them and facilitating getting money from the Nevada County Relief Fund to survivors, you know, pretty immediately after the fire. So Connecting Point was a huge player at the beginning of that just by being there and the county leaning on Connecting Point to provide that. Nora and her team act as liaisons between survivors and the various private and public entities that may be able to help. First of all, you go through the trauma of, of losing your home, your pets, your cars, you, all your belongings. And then you're sent to navigate all this red tape and paperwork and fight with insurance companies and fight with FEMA and fight with SBA loans navigating all this stuff on top of just being in such a delicate emotional state is hard. You know, it's a runaround all the time and they need more documentation and they need this and they need that. Fill out more paperwork. Part of our job, and I try to do this as much as possible, is take the administrative burden off these people. If I can save somebody from having to fill out another application, I will do it because they have so much to deal with. Recently, Connecting Point's Disaster Case Management Program was awarded a sizable grant. We just received a grant of $474,000 from the American Red Cross after we had originally been told that they don't have funding to offer, but our story was convincing enough that they chose our case management team. I asked Nora how that money will be used. Connecting Point is not able to hold those funds. We're not a nonprofit. We're not a 501c3. So St. Vincent de Paul, who is our overseeing program, uh, they're a Catholic charity. They're holding those funds for us and acting as the unmet needs roundtable. So to disperse those funds, someone has to have 
had severe damage to their home or lost their home in the river fire. It has to be their primary residence and they have to be part of our case management program. So they have to complete an intake with one of our case managers. So the case managers gather information from their survivor, figure out what their needs are, figure out what they're eligible for. We complete a unmet needs application and then we present it to the unmet needs roundtable. They ask us a bunch of questions and then they either say yay or nay about approving the funds. And then we facilitate the funding getting to whatever the contractor or vendor is. If your primary residence was severely damaged or destroyed by the 2021 River Fire, you may be eligible to receive help. The first step is calling 211. If you call 211 and let them know you're a River Fire survivor, you will be connected with our program. For KVMR, I'm Claudio Mendoza. Like wildflowers, events are springing up at Nevada County State Parks. Sid Brown, board member of the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation, is here to give you a comprehensive rundown on what's on the fun agenda at Empire Mine, Malakoff Diggins, and South Yuba River State Park. Well, summer is on its way as we look into these beautiful days, this perfect spring weather. We've got events starting to pop up at our local parks, and I'd like to tell you about some of the things that you can look forward to in the few coming weeks. At Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park, we are going to have Humbug Day. Humbug Day will be, as always, the second Saturday of June, and this year that's June 10th at Malakoff Diggins. We celebrate Humbug Day at the town of North Bloomfield as kind of a small local family festival. We will have live music, no cones, popcorn, root beer floats, lazy dog ice cream. We will have a little parade, demonstrations, kids' activities, tour guides uh, showing off the buildings and games and gold panning demonstrations. We're having difficulties finding some actual barbecue or food, lunch-type things to be able to offer. So at this juncture, bring your own lunch. At South Yuba River State Park, there's always hiking and picnicking, especially down toward Bridgeport this time of year. There's still beautiful wildflowers along the buttermilk bed and trail, but as the temperatures warm up, the wildflowers will not be as abundant, but there are flowers throughout the season. You know, last week I participated in a gathering down at Highway 49 Bridge on the, along the South Yuba, and at that time and right now as I'm speaking to you, the flows in the Yuba are quite high. You know, they're probably three times what you would normally see this time of year. Yesterday, they were right hovering around 5,000 cubic feet a second. The water is white, swift, and cold, and not at all inviting for human contact. Great to walk along the river. We still have beautiful trails, but this is going to be a year where human contact with the river is really best to be postponed for quite some time, and certainly not before the 4th of July and maybe all the way through the summer. We're very concerned about human safety and the very swift cold water. So I just want to encourage people who love the river like I do, 
I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till the flow is down. Uh, usually, a thousand CFS, five hundred CFS. It's really in, enjoyable. But there are other places to go and things to do to enjoy water contact. But really. This year, because of the snow melt and all the abundant water, they're really recommending that all of the foothill communities with rivers coming out of the Sierra are going to have a really rough time until the snow is actually melted and the flows can stabilize. So this might be a year for lakes and paddle boards and canoes and We'll just wait and see what the the flows look like as the summer progresses. Again, we do have picnicking at the South Yuba River, especially down toward Bridgeport. But there are, of course, rules and regulations. No fires, no glass, no alcohol. The water is swift, high, and very, very cold. After Memorial Day, or I believe beginning Memorial Day, there will be Yuba River Ambassadors, which are State Park and South Yuba River Citizens League volunteers stationed at Highway 49 in Bridgeport to welcome the public and to advise them of how best to recreate and visit our our river corridor. At Empire Mine, we have a new program that has started this season, and it's called Adventure Pass Family Day. And this is a special program for fourth graders and their families. There are 19 state parks throughout California that are participating in this program this year. And Empire Mine happens to be one of those parks where fourth graders and their immediate family are provided free entry to the parks. And for the summer, we are offering special activity days for fourth graders and their families on the first Saturday of every month. So we had a rather cold and rainy inaugural Adventure Pass Family Day in May, and our next one is going to be June 3rd at Empire Mine. And the theme for that particular Adventure Pass Family Day is Outside Science. And there will be activities for the visitors, nature walks, and all kinds of information to help appreciate the science and the wonders of nature right here at Empire Mine State Historic Park. So that's Saturday. June 3rd from 11 until 3. It's best to pre-register for that program for the free entry and California State Parks has a process where you can do it online and if you don't have the capacity to do that either at a library in advance even the day of there will be people there at Empire Mine who will be able to help you and all of this information that I've been describing is available from a variety of sources. California State Parks has a separate page, web page for each park. So we'll visit a park and choose the park you want to find out information about. And Sierra Gold Parks Foundation has a website, sierragoldparksfoundation.org. California State Parks website is parks.ca.gov, as in Victor. Well, that's it for now. It's really fun to see things coming back. We're going to have more events at the parks as the summer goes on. I look forward to talking to you next time as we have more and more activities to describe.
That's our newscast for Tuesday, May 23rd. Thank you to all of our listener members, new and old, who contributed to the success of our spring membership drive. And thanks to the Nevada City Farmers Market, Saturdays, 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., Robinson Plaza and Union Street, now through mid-December, featuring sustainably grown food from local farmers, crafts, artisanal offerings, also live music, and EBT accepted. ncfarmersmarket.org Support for KVMR's Future of Radio Project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Wednesday for the next edition of the KVMR Evening News.